Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello fellow time travellers, great to have you with me for another journey through space and time. Uh, as always, as always, I like to take the time to thank all of those who have joined my Patreon community. Um, if you don't know about Patreon, you go to patreon.com, you search for a person by name, in this instance me, Neil Oliver, and you you basically pay a little bit of money every month or all together for a year. And by so doing, you become part of a community, a little family. I say a little family, it's a family that's getting bigger all the time. You get access to exclusive material, an exclusive vodcast every week, competitions, various things, you know, that that Paul and I are doing. And you only get them here on Patreon. Uh, I record the film here in uh, my home in Stirling with the company of my dog. My dogs that make an appearance now and again. We run competitions and so on. It's great here. It's full of free thinkers, full of people interested in history, full of people who've got questions, full of people who've, who are curious, people who uh, aren't sure about what's going on and are looking for answers. So come on board, go to patreon.com, search for me by name, Neil Oliver, uh, join the dots, become part of the family. Um, okay, it's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine for the next episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. wisest and justest and best, facing his fate calmly and without complaint, a cup of deadly poison placed before him. The execution of the world's most influential philosopher, devoted to the scrutiny of morality and ethics, reason, intelligence and analysis. He said an unexamined life was not worth living. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, in the last episode we stood shoulder to shoulder with the legendary 300. Where are we this week? Morning Paul, we are staying in ancient Greece uh, and we're off to visit a person uh, whose influence on philosophical thought is perhaps greater than anyone else's in the world ever. He was someone who knew how to get on the wrong side of the authorities and stay there. He knew how to rile people. And for his troubles, he was described as an irritant, a gadfly. Uh, And whatever the consequences, he was prepared to stand alone rather than say or do anything that he knew to be wrong. Uh, We're in ancient Greece again. You, we keep flitting in and out of certain places, Mesopotamia, Babylon, Egypt, ancient Greece. Uh, it's inevitable. It's just, uh, if you're following the, the story of the world in a hundred moments, ancient Greece was of significance for such a long time that we'll have to keep on popping in and out. This time, it's specifically about Socrates. Um, one of those names. He's one of those one-named people from history, like Beyonce, <laughs> that everybody's heard of. And the, the theme is 
I suppose it's very pertinent. This is a story from ancient Greece. It's specifically, the moment in question is 399 years BC, before the birth of Christ. But it's it's ever so pertinent and ever so current and contemporary, really. Uh, because it's about the importance, uh, or let's say the impact, of being prepared to say what you think. To follow the path that comes from within, the, the path that your gut makes you take and damn the consequences. There have always been people like that. There are people who keep their heads down and follow the herd. And there are people who stick their heads up and say, hang on a minute, I don't think this is right. And Socrates effectively, he's like the patron saint, or I think of him as one of the patron saints of cussed, stubborn, defiant types that march to the beat of their own drum, as my mum always used to say. My mum always used to say, never mind what other people think, march to the beat of your own drum. It's also, um, and this is only just in second place, it's almost as important, it's about facing up to accepting what you don't know. I keep tricking myself into thinking that I know a wee bit about stuff. But never any more than that, just a bit. And the reality is, the only thing I really know with any kind of confidence is how much I don't know. I think when you start scratching on the surface of the sum of human knowledge and wisdom, uh, in the little few years that, that any of us gets on this earth, there's barely enough time just to realise the extent, the depth of the ocean of what you don't know. So. That's what Socrates means to me. Uh, we'll get to that. The, the moment, we might, as well, we might as well do the moment right at the top this time. It's the death of Socrates. Um, the year is 399 BC, as I said. And Socrates had been convicted by a court of his peers of corrupting the youth of Athens. That's where he, that's where he lived and, and did his stuff, Athens. So he'd been found guilty of corrupting the youth. The crime was specifically that of impiety. And he wasn't, at the same time, he was not respecting the gods. That's what they did him for. You know, the um, Al Capone and the Untouchables, uh, and the, the, the police have been trying to get him for years because they know he's a criminal and a killer and an organised crime and all the rest of it, but they can't get him. And finally, they, they catch him for uh, not paying his tax. <laughs> this, is base, this is just what they got him for. They, they, they needed to bring Socrates down, so they did. It was all a bit trumped up, really, but... It wasn't really what they were angry with him about, is what I'm saying. You know, folk wanted to get Al Capone because he was a gangster, but they couldn't get him for that, so they had to get him for tax evasion. So uh, the order came down that he was to kill himself, and he was to kill himself by drinking hemlock, or a, a potion uh, made of hemlock. Hemlock's a, a, what is it? it's a plant, isn't it? And uh, when you get an infusion of hemlock... It brings on paralysis, basically, that leads to death. I think what it does is basically cause a massive organ failure. I think your heart stops beating and your lungs stop, you know, breathing. It manifests itself as a, as a, as a slow paralysis and death. Uh, so he, he went for it. He gathered a group of his closest friends around him and he, he drank the hemlock. And he lay down on a bed, and while they stayed around him, stayed close by, he quietly became, you know, paralysed and 
said his last words and died. One of the famous things about Socrates that adds to his mystery and allure is that he didn't establish a school. You know, characters like uh, you know Aristotle, they, they established schools of thinking to which students came. He didn't do that. Neither did he write anything down. In fact, Socrates thought writing things down was a cheat. He thought that everything should be done from memory. That if you didn't actually have it in your head, you're tricking yourself into knowing something. He said you don't actually know it if you don't have it in your memory. So he, he didn't write anything down. And we know as much as we do about Socrates because his student, or one of his students, was Plato. You know, that, that holy trinity of ancient Greek philosophers that people have heard of, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. Well, Plato was a student of Socrates and he, Plato did write things down. There have even been those who have suggested that there was no such person as Socrates, which is, I think that's bunkum. But it, it, it's, he's, so, he's so mysterious and absent because he didn't leave anything tangible behind that it's even been suggested that Plato just created him. He was so important that if he didn't exist, you'd have to make him up sort of style, and that, that Plato needed a character to, to say the, the clever things that he said. Plato wrote various works that are known as dialogues, and one of them, Phaedo, that's P-H-A-E-D-O, pronounced Phaedo, is the one in which uh, Plato describes really the hours running up to Socrates' death. Uh, and according to Plato, this is Plato's account, as he was, you know, he's lying on his bed, Socrates is lying on his deathbed, and he's, he's becoming weaker. And uh, he says to one of his friends, Crito, uh, that to remember to settle a debt that he owes, uh, which is he wants Crito on his behalf to sacrifice a rooster, a male chicken, uh, to Asclepius. And Asclepius is a mythical figure. He's the god of medicine to the Greeks. I think he was sired by Apollo. I can't really remember. But anyway, he's a mythical figure even for the for the ancient Greeks, god of medicine, god of health and well-being. And so, you know, Socrates is like there said, Oh, and put you know, pay a pay a sacrifice a rooster to Asclepius. And Crito says, Yes, I'll, I will do that. And then he, he says to Socrates, Is there anything else you want to say? Because you know, they're looking for words of final words of wisdom, you know, a great end line. And he doesn't. He doesn't say anything more. And after a while they, they pull a, a, a sheet up over his face. And they leave him for a while, and then he's not moving at all. There's not even a there's not even a movement, and um, they take the, the coverlet down, and his eyes are staring. He's gone, uh, and that's it. And according to Plato's dialogue called Phaedo, Crito said, and I quote: "Such was the end of our friend, concerning whom I may truly say." that of the men of his time whom I have known, he was the wisest and justest and best. And amongst, it's a good line from Crito, but amongst other things, I like the precision of the words. And I like to think that the precision of the words comes from his having been in the presence of Socrates for long enough to call him a friend. That bit about of the men of his time whom I have known. You know, he doesn't just leave it loose of the men of his time. He was the wisest and justest and best. He qualifies it by saying of the men of his time whom I have, of whom I have had personal experience. It, there's, there's precision there. And the Socratic method was all about asking questions 
and structuring the questions and, and the back and forth between yourself and another person until you could properly interrogate an idea and really all the time find out how much you or the other person actually knew about the subject in question. That's the Socratic method as I understand it. Interrogating one another until you find out how much, if anything, either of you actually knows. And Socrates was, his style, whether it was tongue-in-cheek or not, was one time after another he would find out that you know, like in that good old line from Hollywood, nobody here knows nothing. <laughs> he, he kept on getting, if he, if he scraped down to the bottom of the barrel, he would find out that nobody knew anything. I don't know. I think it was, it was certainly that was Socrates' shtick. That's what he did. Is that, you know, that wrestling with thoughts and, and interrogation, is that something that, you know, gets you going? It, it does. I like, it's one of those, I have a gut reaction to it. It's so, I would say, fundamental. It's a baseline and stripped away from everything else. I suppose it's, it's like if you, if you found yourself washed up on a desert island with one other person and you were stuck there, there was nobody else, you would while away the time probably by talking to each other. Because when you strip away everything else, books, the internet, everything, you're only left with what you can work out by talking to one another. And having someone else to talk to, argue with, debate with, hear their thoughts, share your thoughts with that person. When it comes right down to it, really that's all any of us have got. Everything else is a kind of a veneer. You've really only got that which is inside your own head. And also you can take advantage of the contents of somebody else's head in those circumstances. So there's something about it. There's the, the simplicity and the honesty of it I enjoy because more and more really, especially because during the last couple of years of turmoil, I've, I've had to confront that what I thought I understood about the world I live in is wrong. And, and ideas that, and understanding, things I've taken for granted about the world around me and the way people operate and the way authority operates, uh, I, I had been I had my head in the sand. And I've had to confront that and admit it to myself that the way I have understood many topics is incomplete at best or downright wrong at worst. And I think once you open yourself up to that, it's very liberating. I, I think there's a danger in having much in the way of an intellectual pride. I sometimes think that in society at the moment, some of the people most at risk of being misled and not seeing things clearly are those who think that they are very, very smart and that they know a lot and that what they know is correct. I think, perversely, that can make a person very vulnerable. And, and I've just, I've, I've gone through a period of thinking, God, I was wrong about that. I was wrong about that. I was wrong about that as well. And it's a bit debilitating. It's not debilitating. It's a bit, it, it fairly brings you down, it fairly knocks you down a peg or two. Uh, and I quite like it. And it, it brings me back time and time again to Socrates. I definitely think Socrates really existed and what he does is right he's right in there in the bedrocks of what we call philosophy and he marks a drawing of a line in the sand really of all that had gone before and all that came after he was interested in you know concepts like courage and justice piety 
morality, ethics. And to better understand those concepts, he asked questions of himself. And really, he's, I think he was... The impression you get is that he wandered about Athens and he just stopped people in the street and did vox pops. You know, like a reporter. You know, you see where they, where they stop people in the street and ask them what they think about whatever, fox hunting or vaccines or, or immigrants crossing the channel. That kind of... That seems to be... in in a simplified form, what Socrates was all about. What do you think of? So I, I kind of love the idea of him. We're invited to think that Socrates embarked on what he became famous for because another of his friends, who's called Chaerophon, had gone to the oracle at Delphi and asked the oracle, who in Athens is wiser than Socrates? And the oracle had said no one. Chaerophon came back to Socrates and said, you'll never guess. <laughs> the oracle at Delphi says there's nobody in Athens that's wiser than you. And, and Socrates apparently then thought, oh, really? And went out and tried to find out if that was the case. And he did it by finding, well, he was doing a straw poll, but he also sought out the people that were regarded as being the wisest and the cleverest and the most learned. And he, he would put them to the test and he would ask them his questions and he would do his Socratic method on them, like a kind of intellectual kung fu and he kept on finding these supposedly clever people coming up empty. For a thousand years, anybody and every Alexander the Great, all, you know, the, everyone consulted the Oracle at Delphi. The Oracle at Delphi was always a woman from the beginning. And legend had it that there was a, temp there was a temple at Delphi with, with the Oracle living inside it. That's where she greeted the, the people that came to consult the Oracle. And according to the legend, and this legend goes all the way back to the time of the Mycenaean civilization, it's ancient idea, it was the spot on the planet where Apollo, when he was just an infant, the god Apollo, when he was just a wee lad, he encountered a giant snake, a serpent, called Python. That's why big snakes are called pythons. But this big serpent was actually called, that was, that was its name, like the snake in Harry Potter. It was Python. And Apollo killed it. And the, this, the giant serpent's body then slipped and slithered and fell into a crevasse that they happened to be standing beside, a crack in the earth. Afterwards, vapours started to rise. And it was, the stink, it was the stench of corruption. It was the smell of Python's body rotting. And the vapours never stopped coming. Because, you know, it's a myth. You know, so it, it, the, the, the gas of, it, of, the, of, the, of the smell of python was was always rotting and the idea grew that if you inhaled the, the gas it connected you to the divine the world of the gods apollo divine wisdom so anyone standing breathing in this smell would be a, a kind of an interlocutor a bridge between the world of the gods and our world that legend came from all the way back in mycenaean times and by the 7th century BC, there was a temple there. And the, whoever was in it at a time, there was only ever one, one oracle at a time, and that, that woman was called Pythia on account of Python. And it's not, not for the first time, and for various reasons in, in other contexts, it was decided that young, pure, vestal virgins, one at a time, would be the perfect conduit for divine wisdom. So it'd be a young, it was a young woman who was installed. But... All, nearly everybody that came to consult the Oracle at Delphi tended to be a man 
often a powerful man, a warrior maybe, and true or not, it seemed to be the case that often these Vestal Virgins were being violated and, and, and raped by the men that came to consult them. And so to get around that, the Oracle at Delphi would be an older woman, 50s, 60s, 70s, dressed in the garb of a Vestal Virgin, but an older woman, so as for one reason or another she might be at less risk from the guys that were, were coming in. And by the time of Chaerephon and, and Socrates, the deal was that the Oracle at Delphi would be available to meet people for one day in each of the nine warmest months of the year. So nine days in the year you could go to the Oracle at Delphi. The idea was that Apollo, I don't know, went on holiday in the cold months, just wasn't around, so you couldn't consult the Oracle because he wasn't there to communicate with. And funnily enough, the excavation of the, of the site of the Temple at Delphi in the 80s uh, established a subsurface, a deep down the earth crack, or a couple of cracks, from which, because of the nature, the bitumen content of the rocks way down deep, it, there may have been a release of methane gas, right enough, seeping up in this location. And if you intensified that by building a temple, a small, don't think big, don't think, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral, a little windowless chamber. On top of this, that that would fill up with methane and it's possible that a person sitting in there would begin to get a bit, whoa, uh, trance-like. So that there may have been a, an actual geophysical explanation for what seemed to happen to people in the temple at Delphi. Other, others have suggested it was snake venom, you know, linking back to snakes, python, serpents. And of course, there's always been the supposition that people were just acting, that it was just a performance that was put on. Confusingly for us, people who would go to consult the Oracle at Delphi were called consultants. They wanted to consult the Oracle, so they were called consultants. And of course, we think of going to see a consultant, you know, a consultant heart surgeon or a consultant psychiatrist or whatever. Um, and so you, you, if you went on one of the nine days that she was available, you'd either stand in line and you can imagine queues because hypothetically anyone could come and ask consult the Oracle at Delphi but as is always the way you could fast track it like getting through security at the airport if you paid so powerful people would come and offer money and that was how the temple at Delphi became rich because it was you know there was, there was cash coming from kings and emperors and others who would come and they would jump the queue uh, by offering up money whoever came you'd also have to provide us an animal sacrifice you know, a chicken or, or whatever else you could afford. Maybe if you brought a bull, you'd be more inclined to get a more interesting answer for your question. And over time, the Oracle at Delphi, the genius of the Oracle at Delphi was that the answers she gave, and the answers either came directly from the Oracle or sometimes the Oracle at Delphi would speak in a, like in tongues, an incomprehensible babble, and there'd be a priest nearby who would interpret, you don't understand what she's saying, but I do, and here's what she just said. But the genius, however it was being done, however the answer was being acquired, was that the answer worked multiple ways. You know the magic eight ball? You know that black magic eight ball that you shake? You ask it a question and then you shake it and the answer you get, it always sort of fits. You can make that answer work. Well, the Oracle at Delphi was a bit of an ancient Greek magic eight ball. And there was a famous example, Croesus. You know Rich's Croesus, that saying? Croesus was the king of Lydia, and Croesus was thinking about going to war, attacking Persia, God love him. And before he did it, in ancient, in ancient times, nobody, did, nobody of note did anything without consulting the oracle at Delphi. 
you just didn't. You didn't move. Didn't make a move. And so Croesus came, no doubt paid a great sum of money, got in front of the Oracle at Delphi and said, what will happen if I attack Persia? And the answer came back, an empire will fall. And Croesus took that as a good omen. thought, fantastic, it's going to be the end of Persia. But he was defeated, in fact. It was his empire that fell. But there was no way that anybody could go back and say, well, your answer was wrong. Because all she said in answer to the question was, an empire shall fall. And it did. So, so the fame and the, and the wisdom of, of the Oracle at Delphi came on and on and on. So anyway, that's a bit of a detour. As I said, Chaerephon told Socrates what the Oracle at Delphi had said, and he then went out there doing his thing, asking questions. And after a period of time of applying his Socratic method, Socrates came to the conclusion that none of the smartest people that he encountered seemed to know anything, or not anything that he valued. And he decided that, he, he said, well, even before this started, I already knew that I didn't know anything. And because I at least knew that I didn't know anything, that actually does, as it turns out, make me the wisest man in Athens, just as the oracle had said. And the thinking goes that because so many people, high-profile brains, had been bested by, maybe even humiliated by Socrates in front of other people, there may have been a growing feeling of animosity towards him. You know, because nobody likes a smart arse as the saying goes. In terms of background, what we do know about him is that he was the son of a stonemason and a midwife. He, in his younger days, had been a a very brave soldier. He'd been part of, he'd taken part in the Peloponnesian War, uh, which is the war after we've dealt with Thermopylae, where Athens and Sparta joined forces to defeat Persia. After that, Athens and Sparta fell out big time with one another and went to war. That's the Peloponnesian War. And Sparta won it, ultimately. went on for years, not on forever. But eventually the the Spartans were victorious. And Socrates lived right in a time where Athens was in chaos, really, because it had been... Athens had, had, had always had very high opinion of itself. It certainly looked down on Sparta. And it was a very difficult adjustment for Athens to come to terms with the fact that they'd been wholly defeated by, by anyone, never mind Sparta. Socrates lived in that time of tumult and anxiety. There had been a battle in the year 406 BC, part of the Peloponnesian War, called Argenusae. Arginusai, I'm not sure how you pronounce that one. Athens had won the battle. It was a it was a, a battle at sea. It was a battle between galleys, ships. But although the Athenians had had triumphed, there had been a storm uh, in the aftermath of the victory, and 25 Athenian ships had been lost, and the men, all the crewmen, hundreds of them, had been left to drown. So it had been a something of a pyrrhic victory, in as much as. Athens had triumphed, but at great cost. And there was what amounted to an official inquiry in the aftermath. And six of the generals were put on trial. Six of the Athenian generals were put on trial. And the public mood of the demos, you know, as in democracy, the public mood of the people surrounding the trial was that they were out for blood. They wanted these generals punished. 
And Socrates, the way the system worked, it was a bit like a jury and a chairman of the jury taking care of the trial, overseeing the trial. And Socrates, by law, really, just because it was his turn, effectively, he was the, the president of the assembly, as they called it, that was in charge of the trial, that was conducting the trial. And the mood of the, of the, the mood was convict. But Socrates wouldn't and didn't. He wouldn't convict the generals. And in the aftermath of that, which was very controversial, Plato, again, because we only know what we know because Plato wrote these things down, Plato said that Socrates emerged as a gadfly. A gadfly is an insect that bothers horses and bulls, bites them and, you know, makes them angry, annoys them, makes them, you know, snort and flick their tail and everything. So Plato said that Socrates emerged as a gadfly who was liable to and had the confidence to defy the majority, to stand up in the face of the mob, the demos, the establishment, whatever, and just say what he believed. And he was prepared to take the consequences of doing that. It wasn't the only time that he did that. It, that wasn't the only occasion. After the Peloponnesian War, Sparta won, and Sparta put in place a kind of a puppet government to run, to oversee the rule of, of Athens. And it was composed, comprised of 30 pro-Sparta leaders, and they were known as the 30 Tyrants. And on one occasion, Socrates defied them as well. He got up in their faces and challenged them. And so that's the kind of individual we're dealing with. And so, in short, he changed philosophy prior to... I mean, I'm no, I'm no philosopher, but prior to Socrates, there was a belief amongst the smart Alex that you could understand the cosmos, you could understand the universe and everything that surrounds it by intuition. If you just thought enough about a subject, you would come up with the answer. That sounds pretty cocky, really, if you think about it. You know, I don't need to read a book or or go anywhere or look at anything. I can just think. I can just think up the answer. And, but Socrates concluded, I mean, he was by no means a scientist or anything. He wasn't establishing what we understand as the scientific method. But he did at least conclude that you should look around and ask questions. You know, so he was foundational in, in as much as he thought he didn't know enough. Before him, those that self-described philosophers thought they were so clever they could just work everything out, just with my brain. But he didn't think like that. He thought, I don't know anything. And the only way I'm going to improve my understanding of, of everything is to ask questions. You know, I mentioned before, all of this was happening while Athens was going through a great deal of upheaval. And I suppose it was probably a time where a lot of people, with any sense, you might say, were keeping their heads down because there was trouble looking for somewhere to go. But Socrates, in that atmosphere, put his head up. And by so doing, he was Im implicitly challenging the wisdom of the majority. He was challenging the wisdom of the demos. And by so doing... He, he became a kind of a useful scapegoat for anyone, the great and the good, who wanted... They wanted to distract people from all that was going on. All the hardship. A lot of people had lost everything. Times were hard. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. Because as far as I'm concerned, the, the powers that be at the moment are trying to distract us from cost of lockdown crises and all the rest of it. And... 
you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And that was the period of history in Athens that Socrates lived through. And he became this useful scapegoat, someone they could go for. Let's just, let's just distract everyone by going after this, this guy that we could do with taking down anyway. So, a bit of a show trial. They accused him of disrespecting the gods, of corrupting the youth. But in reality, what they were probably out to get him for was he was saying, he was challenging the rule of majority. He was really saying we should actually take our direction from cleverer people, philosopher kings, people who were a combination of rulership and great wisdom, philosopher kings, that you didn't need a majority of them. You wanted to be directed by people who had demonstrated that they really were clever and that they had demonstrated that they were clever, not because of where they were born or who they were born from or anything else. They had, it, it had been made plain because of the things they could think and the things they could say when put under pressure in the context of an argument. So they convicted him. They got him anyway. You know, he made all these... It's, apparently it was during his trial that he said he's, he's probably his most famous line of all, which is, an unexamined life is not worth living. That was part of his defence of himself. And the, the, the thinking is that the court, although they convicted him and sentenced him to death, they probably would have been satisfied if he had just kind of accepted his cancelling. Because that's what we're dealing with here. Socrates was being cancelled. He was being deplatformed, And it's highly likely that what they really wanted him to do was off. <laughs> Just go away. Leave Athens never to return. But he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Socrates told his friends, and Plato wrote it down, that he could hear a voice inside his head. Now, that's not to say that he thought he was mad, but the voice inside his head didn't tell him what to do, it told him what not to do. And he listened to it all his life. It told him, don't do this. So the implicit message from the court was, go away, shut up, stop doing what you're doing, naff off. But he wouldn't do it. And instead, he was 70. Well, he was an old man by any standards, really, and certainly by the standards of ancient Greece. And... Maybe that played into it, but he decided to stay put and drink the hemlock and die because he was defiant to the end. And those last words about the rooster, when he says to Crito, don't forget to sacrifice a rooster to Asclepius, he may well have been acknowledging a deep understanding that he had come to, that the times through which he was living needed a sacrifice. Athens was a muddied, polluted mess and it needed to be cleansed, purified, cured in the way that a god of medicine might do, Asclepius. And his dying words may actually have been Socrates suggesting that he was offering himself up as the necessary sacrifice. He was that rooster. But in any event, 399 BC, Socrates when he didn't necessarily need to, accepted death rather than any other alternative. And he stands head and shoulders above many, many others in the herd because he's one of those, those few, there have always been a few at least who won't back down, who won't shut up even when told to do so and will continue to ask questions and say what they think and march to the beat of their own drum regardless of the consequences.
That's Socrates. Strength in numbers and cooperation. A league of states is formed, throwing off the Persian yoke. Jealousy and conflict simmer amongst allies. War lifts its devastating head. The mighty Spartan hoplites take on the rich and powerful Athenians. Intrigue and double-dealing, the tectonic plates of power shift as democracy, politics, philosophy and art flower like never before. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening, and perhaps write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hey Gracie, how you doing? How you doing, big girl?